This is the City of Refuge, Thomaston, Georgia, Sunday morning podcast. The following is a live recorded sermon by Pastor Jeff Deal. If we can put up my little picture on the screen, phenomenal artwork here. Um, Arrows up and down, side to side. And um, I didn't really, when I was looking for arrows online, looking for a picture, I really didn't have the cross in mind at that moment. Once I started looking at it, and then I realized, well, it's, an, it's the shape of a cross, the one I decided to use. <clears throat> and so, of course, the wheels started turning a little bit. And thinking about the scripture we've been dealing with for couple weeks now from John chapter 14 we could put that back up if you guys have it ready um, where uh, Jesus is saying some things that are really really profound and he's opening up some things here to his close followers that were important to them and they're also really important to us he says do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. Why, why can we believe in Jesus just because we believe in God? Because they are one and the same. They are part of the uh, Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. You cannot separate out the Father from the Son or the Son from the Spirit or any one of the three from the other two. You believe in God, believe also in me. My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. Next screen. You know the way to the place where I am going. So he, he tells them, you know the way to the place where I'm going. Now, based on the questions that come next, we wonder whether he was correct or not in that declaration that they know. But the fact is, is that, like we've said before, we're all trying to get to God. We're all trying to get into the heart of God. Jesus has announced that there are spaces, rooms, places in the heart of God that we can move into if we walk through the process the right way. And what happens with us as human beings is down deep inside of us, we do know we have this knowledge in us about what the right way is and about what it is we're going after, but we bury it. We bury it so that it becomes undiscernible in our lives. We, we, uh, we pile a lot of stuff on top of the truth and on top of a clear picture of the way so that we feel like we don't know what we're doing. We feel like we don't know how to get there. And that's why we have to start digging in and paying attention to what he's saying to allow him to chip away 
all the stuff that we've piled on or that has been piled on us, we may not have actually intentionally made that decision, but life has just piled stuff up on top of us. Anybody feel like that during your lifetime, you've had a lot of junk piled up on you? Yeah. And what happens when the junk of life is piled up on us, then our vision begins to become blurred. And in some cases, we go blind altogether. We become completely spiritually blind. I think that's what's happened in our world. When, when we look around and we see certain things and we hear certain things out there in our culture, and we just shake our heads and say, what? How can, how can we arrive to the place where educated people and successful people really believe that? And I've come to the conclusion that the reason is blindness. The stuff of life, the stuff of living in this world has been piled on to the point that we've just gone blind and deaf spiritually. So they start to answer questions because they have blindness and deafness. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? And Jesus answered, I am the way. That's why I said to them originally, you know right here I am. I'm standing in front of you. I'm speaking words to you. And, he's, and he, he starts the announcement by saying, God and I are one and the same. So you know where you're going and you know how to get there, but, but stuff's been piled, stockpiled on top of you in life to where you've lost some vision, you've lost some hearing, but I'm here to, to peel all of that off so that you can once again have a clear vision of the way and know where you're going and have a good understanding of how to get there. So Jesus answers, I am the way and the truth and the life, and that's process. You have to commit to the way before you start to see glimpses of the truth, which will ultimately take you into the life that you're after. Process. We don't pray, God, give me the entire scope of your truth right now. He's not going to do it. Why? Because he can't trust us with it. He's not going to give us anything he can't trust us with. Besides, if he was to give us everything at one time, we would just drop dead. We're not designed, we don't have the capacity to manage all of that at once. So we commit ourselves to the way which is process. Day by day, getting up, consulting with him, listening to him, chewing on his words, having communion, fellowship, and prayer, and then responding in obedience to what he's saying to us. And then little by little, he starts to give us glimpses of truth starts to open up a revelation in front of us, starts to whisper new words in our ears, starts to show us things he hasn't shown us before. And little by little, we move into the life that he has planned for us, which is that space in the heart of the Father that he went to prepare for you and me. Okay? We're reviewing that every week, and, I, and we'll continue reviewing it until I feel like we got it. 
So he says, I'm the way, the truth, the truth, and the life. And here's what's very important is that you cannot get to the Father unless you come through me. In other words, this is the only way to do it. There is no other way. Now, whoever first thought of the lie, and to all of those who have perpetuated that lie throughout many centuries now, that all it takes to get into the heart of God is to repeat an 11-word prayer that we call the sinner's prayer, uh, you know, th that steered a lot of folks off course because you can't find that in the Bible. And how and why we ever make the decision that we're going to embrace and live by so many things that are not in the Bible, I don't know. <laughs> because it's just not in the Bible. You do have to confess your sins. You do have to repent, but that's only step number one. And we can't cherry pick our steps. We have to pay attention to all the steps. Step number one is confess and repent. That's a step through the gateway. Once you step through the gateway, then you're on the way, the trail, the path, the road. And we don't plop down beside, just on the other side of the gate and say, well, I'm good to go. You know, and I've been to too many funerals where the person who's there that we're talking about their life you know, prayed a sinner's prayer at youth camp when they were eight years old and lived like hell the rest of their lives. But according to the people who are talking about them, because they prayed that prayer, they were good to go. I'm kind of fond of the guy at Pleasantdale Church when I worked up there. That old, old preacher, about 85 years old, was conducting a funeral. And this, this fellow up here, Charlie, had died. And, and the old preacher walked up to the podium and said, Well, Let's go ahead and start the day with honesty. Old Charlie here just busted hell wide open. So, too late for him. Let me talk to the rest of you. Well, I don't necessarily think we ought to do that, but nor do I think we ought to get up and tell lies about, about who they are and what they did. You can find some way around that, right? <clears throat> Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody can come to the Father except through me. This is the only way, way, way to get it done, and it is a way. And the word way does not connote an event, a one-time happening, and then you're done. The word way indicates process. The word way indicates a journey, a trip, and it lasts our entire lives. I am the way. You have to step into the way, and then every day you get up and you commit yourself to walking in whatever portion of the way is in front of you to walk for that day. And you don't worry about tomorrow, and you don't worry about yesterday. You're committed to what the way holds for you today. And little by little, you will walk in this way day by day, and you will start to see glimpses of truth. And every once in a while, you can pause, and you can rest a minute, and you'll look around, and you'll say, wow, look what has happened in my life. Look at the progress I've made. Look at the growth I've experienced. Look at the maturity I've achieved. And I did not set a goal to make progress or to get mature, but I did make a commitment to walk in the way each day, and because of that, he is moving me into truth and life.
because results are up to him. They're not up to us. What's up to us is a commitment to process, to the way. Results are up to him. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. He says, if you really know me, you will know my Father as well. Again, that's why he says to them, you know the way because you know me. If you know me, you know my Father. From now on, you do know him and have seen him because you know me and have seen me. So our focus is on Jesus the Christ. And let's put the, let's put the arrows back up. So we know that we're, we're on a road. And we talked last week about how it's a two-way road. It is us moving toward God, and at the same time, it is God moving toward us. And although it is forward progress for us, it also does include God coming to us. And although it is forward progress for us, we also have to know that there is strength, there is insight, there is wisdom, there's knowledge, there's understanding from looking back at what has happened in the lives of those who have gone before us. That's why I put arrows going this way and that way, and I got that from Jesus himself. We also have arrows going up and going down, and this thing is in the shape of the cross. And when you think about the cross, listen, I don't know if you've ever thought about it this way. The cross represents, in the entire history of the world, the number one most pivotal moment in the history of mankind. At the top of the list of all the things that have ever happened, that cross with one human being nailed to it, hanging from it on a rocky hillside in Judea, in Jerusalem, with just a few people gathered around and some soldiers from a foreign country there running the show, that situation, as ironic as it looks and sounds, is the pivot point for all of humanity for all of time. That cross stands as number one on the list of human experiences of any importance whatsoever. So you can look back at the Great Flood. You can look back at wars. We've had world wars just you know, in, in the 20th century, there were two world wars. They don't even come close, although they did change life for pretty much everybody on the planet. Although they did cause things to shift in our world, although they were very important. They don't even come close to the importance of the experience that happened on the cross. Nothing comes close. Top of the list. 
And when Jesus was on the cross, he's hanging vertically. He's pointing, the top of the cross is pointing up as if to the Father. The bottom of the cross is pointing down as, as into the world. And the arms of the cross are pointing out in opposite directions. There's nothing left out. There's nobody left out. It's all inclusive. I've heard it said the ground was level at the foot of the cross, and symbolically that's true in that it's all-inclusive. Jesus is hanging there and His arms are pointed out and, and we've heard it said that He's reaching out for humanity. We've heard it said that He's saying, I love you this much. We've heard it said that He's reaching His arms around the world. Whatever the case may be, I don't think we can go wrong with any of that thinking. There's a thief and a robber on this side. There's a thief on this side. And he's reaching out to both of those as if to save. Whatever the lowest form of human life there is, I'm here for you. I'm doing this for you. You are not left out. It doesn't matter if you're poor. It doesn't matter if you're rich. It doesn't matter if you fall somewhere in between. It doesn't matter if you are of African descent, European descent, Asian descent, South American descent. None of that matters. He is not an American God. He is not a white God. He's not exclusive to anybody. He is inclusive of everybody. And he's on the cross and he's reaching out. Just one man in one spot, but the most important event that's ever happened was his death and his resurrection. And Jesus, before he went to the cross, said to his followers, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And, and one of them questions him and says, but look, we don't know the way, so how can we know how to get there? And one of the things he doesn't reveal to them in a lot of detail, but was always symbolically coming up in his language, was that he was headed to the cross. It was a thing they didn't expect. He was headed to the cross. And he's telling them that I am the way, and whatever this way includes, you have to be willing to walk with me in that way. And he uses all sorts of forward and backward stories, illustrations, examples as he's talking to them about the way. So we know that he's pointing forward toward God because he says, I'm going to prepare a place for you in the heart of the Father. We know that once he rose from the dead, he then ascended and we're told that he sit, sat down at the right hand of the Father and that's where he is even until now. That's forward. But there were many times when he reflected back in order to teach them and to teach us very important lessons about the way. And one name that Jesus called, and we're going to examine his story a little bit today, is the name of Abraham. If you go to the first chapter of Matthew, the first thing in the first chapter of Matthew is the genealogy of Jesus Christ. All that list of names. Why do they have to do that? You start trying to read it and you just get frustrated. You can't pronounce half of them. And you're like, what's the point of this even being here anyway? Nobody cares. Well, it's very important that that's there. Because those are the names of human beings who have lived on the planet 
the names of human beings who have dealt with the same stuff and the same problems and the same junk that we deal with. Hunger, poverty, illness, broken relationships, murder, crime, perversion. The people on that list dealt with life just like we have to deal with life. That's why their names are there. And some of them stand out. And when Jesus calls the name of Abraham, he does so with a great sense of admiration and reverence. When you go to the book of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 11, which is known as the faith chapter, Abraham is, I mean, the light is really shined on Abraham because he was a man of tremendous faith. And Jesus points to Abraham, and in that genealogy of of Jesus, it says, this is the genealogy of Jesus, the son of David, the son of Abraham. You remember how much importance we put when we were studying David on the fact that Jesus was referred to as the son of David, although he wasn't really like David's biological son, and there were many generations between David and Jesus. But he's still referred to as the son of David, which says to me, we need to pay attention to the life of David. And there were many generations between David and Abraham, but because it says he's the son of David, the son of Abraham, I think that since Abraham has pointed out, we need to pay attention to the life of Abraham. Besides that, Jesus calls Abraham's name a few times. And he doesn't call a lot of names. So if he calls a name, I think we need to examine what happened with that person. What can we learn from that person? If the person was significant enough for Jesus to pay a little attention to them, I'm going to conclude that they were significant enough for me to pay a little attention to them. So do we go to the story of Abraham? That's backwards. Okay, and a lot of times we say, and I've said it myself, we don't dwell in the past But we understand what we're talking about there, right? We don't go wallow around in our mistakes and our failures and our shortcomings. We don't spend a lot of time hovering around in what was wrong because that's going to drag us down. But it is by all means okay to go backwards in order to examine the lives of people and to learn things that are going to help us on the way. So we take a look at Abraham. There's a pivotal point in his life. A huge moment in his life that we'll get to in a second. But it starts off when God just identifies him and says, Hey, I'm picking you to do something. And here's what I want you to do. I want you to pack up your family and your belongings and move to a place you've never been to. Now, there's not a whole lot of detail and there's not a whole lot of discussion that goes on between God and Abraham. Here's what happens. According to the Scripture, God said, I want you to pack up and move, and Abraham said, okay. God said, I want you to pack up and move to a place you've never been to, and Abraham said, okay. I don't know that God's going to speak to any of us next week and tell us he wants us to literally pack up from wherever you live, pack up your home, put it all in a truck, 
and that he's going to tell you someplace way off somewhere you've never been to, you don't know anybody there, you don't know anything about what it looks like or about who else lives there or about what, whatever's going on and move. But I will tell you this, for many of us in this room, he has said to us, I want you to pack up from where you've been in life. I want you to pack up from the way you've always done church. I want you to pack up from what we called last week the horrible pit of Christian mediocrity. I want you to pack up from all of that because I've got something new for you. I've got a new experience. I've got a new way I want to show you. I've got some awesome stuff down the road for you. And you've never been there before, but I need you to say yes because this is going to be a faith walk. And when you jump into it, it's going to involve all kinds of challenges and all kinds of thrills. But here's what you know. When you get to where I'm sitting, sending you to, it's going to be well worth it. Because the freedom, the peace, the provision, the power, the protection from your enemies that you're going to experience is going to be like nothing you've ever experienced in your life. So get up and pack up and let's go. And it's going to be a day-by-day journey because I'm not giving you a GPS. There is no navigation system and you've never been there before, you're just going to have to get up every morning and pay attention to what I'm saying and travel in the direction that I give you and you'll end up where I want you to be. And Abraham said, okay, let's go. So he packs up his family and they go. Now just like David, Abraham was a man. And all along the way he tried to insert... Abrahamic ideas into God's plan. Jeff Deal's done that a few times. It's fun for a minute, and then you realize it was stupid. You feel good about yourself for a minute, and then you realize just really how dumb that was. I'm going to add ingredients to God's recipe. I'm going to help God do his job because Lord knows he, he don't know what he's doing. He needs me. God needs me, y'all. He needs my help. <laughs> yeah, I don't think so. And I've learned that the hard way, and some of you have learned it the hard way, and some of us are still learning it the hard way every day. Because all he wants of us is for us to get up every morning and say, Father, what do you have to say to me today? What do you want to show me today? Where do you want to take me today? Where is that? Now, I'm all packed up. I'm a tent shrine for true worship, like Stephen described it in the book of Acts. I'm a tent shrine. I'm not building any permanent structure out of my life. I'm not setting down my roots right here and declaring this is where I am, this is where I'm going to stay. I'm on the move. Where do you want to go? What is the way? What does the way look like? Show me a little bit at a time. I'm committed to the process. I'm saying yes daily. Let's go. Boy, thrilling, adventurous way to live. So Abraham's on his way, and along the way, just making stupid decisions here and there. You know, his wife's very attractive, and so they're going into a city, and he looks at her, and he says, you know what, when they see you, uh, they're going to want you to the extent that they're going to kill me to take you, so let's tell them you're my sister. 
And he knows they're going to take her, they're going to take her anyway. So he's given his wife over to the leaders of this country just to save his own hide because he's sure that God ain't big enough to protect him, although God is the one who told him to go this way. So sure enough, they take her and they allow him to live. And God steps in and makes everybody in the palace violently sick. And the king realizes what's going on and comes to Abram and says, what did you do that for? Why didn't you just tell us she was your wife and we would have left her alone? Take her and get out of here. He did that twice, by the way. He didn't learn his lesson the first time. He did it twice. He does it again later on. And then God says to him one day, says, you know what I'm going to do? I've chosen you, and, and, and you've been walking in my way. You've been going where I told you to go, and you've had your little bumps in the road, and you've learned some lessons, but, but I, I've still picked you to be my son. I'm st I've still picked you to be the father of a nation. I've still picked you to do a work for me. So I'm going to give you a child. You and your wife, they're old people. I'm going to give you all a son because this is going to be, be the beginning of the whole nation that I'm giving to you. And they're like, oh, well, I don't believe that can work. Because again, God doesn't always know what he's doing, right? He, he give us a plan, he give us a command, and then we think it's up to us to figure out how to get it done. So, well, God told me we could have a son, but there's no way we can do that. So we better get a younger woman in here and, and uh, figure out how to make that happen. And so sure enough, he does that and she bears him a son and all kinds of problems come out of that. Why? Because anytime we start adding ingredients to God's recipe, all kinds of problems are going to come out of it. And what it does is it delays our progress. It, it knocks us over. It, it, it inhibits whatever it is he's doing for the moment and takes us longer to get to where we're going than it would have taken if we'd have just listened to him and did what he said. And so ultimately they learn all these lessons and then Sarah finally does bear a child and they name the child Isaac. You have to know this boy is the apple of their eye, right? After everything that's happened for him to get here and they are elderly and now they have a baby boy, a treasure. You have to know the attention that child got. That he was the center of their world. And then one day, and here's the pivotal point. It's actually the pivotal point of the book of Genesis. It sits right in the middle. It's like a fulcrum that, that is going to dictate and determine where a lot of things after that are going to land. God comes to Abraham just out of the clear blue and says, I want you to take that child that I gave you. And I want you to take him up on Mount Moriah. And I want you to offer him as a sacrifice to me. And you know what Abraham's answer was? Okay. Now you want to talk about faith. You want to talk about clarity 
in an understanding of who is God and who is not. How many of us are at the point where if God came to us and said, I want you to sacrifice your child, we'd just say, okay. I'm not. But that's what Abraham says. Oddly enough, he just says, okay. So he packs up a donkey, he takes Isaac, and they go to Mount Moriah. And they go up on this mountain, and he takes the firewood that he's brought with him, and he builds a little altar, and he puts the firewood on the altar, and Isaac says to him, says, Dad, you know, well, you got your altar here, and you, you've got your, um, you got your firewood, but you don't have a sacrifice. And Abraham's answer to him is profound, and it just teaches us so many things about how this way works. He just looks at his son and says, son, it's okay. God said for us to do this, so we're going to do it. And he will provide whatever sacrifice he's requiring, it's up to him to provide it. And God had provided that child to him. And if that child had to be sacrificed, then Abraham stood ready and willing to be obedient to that, even knowing that God had said, this child is going to perpetuate this great nation that I'm giving to you that you will be called the father of. How does all that work? I don't know how it works. Abraham didn't know how it works. Here's the good news, y'all. We don't have to know how it works because he knows how it works. We don't have to know how it works. The reason, you know, I'm a minister, I guess I'm a preacher, teacher, pastor, whatever, and I, I admire people who can go study in theological seminaries and all that, and I read material written by some guys that have... They've got multiple doctorates and they've been given honorary PhDs because they're brilliant and they've spent their lives studying and researching and reading and, and digging out all this stuff about God and, and they call it theology. I can't do that and I'll tell you why I can't do it because I just don't, in my own mind, in my own simplistic way of thinking, I don't think we have the capacity to figure God out that way. So we can learn a lot of stuff. But here's something that struck me one day. It's like you have a theologian over here who spends 40 years studying, studying the Scripture, going to the original languages, uh, examining those cultures back then, and he draws this conclusion. And you have another theologian over here who does the exact same thing, but guess what? He draws an entirely different conclusion. This is how you end up with doctrines that are so different from each other inside the Christian faith. This is how you end up with denominationalism is when you have theologians who study and who research and who read and who examine cultures and they come back with their conclusions and then we build religious systems based on our conclusions. 
the church of God, which I grew up in, which my father was a minister in for 60 years, was having serious debates at their gatherings about the issue of sanctification. And one side was arguing that sanctification is a one-time event, just like salvation, to where God cleanses you and cleans you up, and then you can declare, I am sanctified. Another side was arguing that sanctification is a process. And that every day, you depend on the Holy Spirit to cleanse you and clean you. And that your entire life is spent living in the process of sanctification. And the two sides could not meet. So the denomination assigned its two top theologians to spend two years studying the topic of sanctification. Both of these men were longtime ministers, PhDs, professors at Lee University, which is the Church of God School. And for two years they studied the topic of sanctification, up and down and front to back every way you could study it, and they came back and delivered their individual reports without consulting with each other. And guess what? One concluded that it's a one-time event, and the other concluded that it's a lifelong process. And I don't see anything wrong with them studying it, and I don't see anything wrong with people wondering and asking questions and digging into the Word to try to figure these things out. But I tell you what, we would be better served to do, in my opinion, and would work out better for us as just plain old Jeff and Jeff and Tracy and, and Mandy and Miss Shirley and everybody in the room if we just get up every morning and get the word out in front of us and chew off a little piece of it and say, Father, by your spirit and with every bit of humility I have in me and with no presumptions about anything, I want you to teach me what you have for me out of this word today. I want you to shine a little bit of revelation in my life. I want you to show me a little bit more about who you are, what you're doing in the earth so that I can jump in the middle of it. I want you to tell me what you expect of me today. I want you to help me to have a discernment and a vision and an ability to hear and a sensitive heart so that when people cross my path day by day, I will know how by the Spirit to respond to them and to accomplish your work and to perpetuate your kingdom in the earth. And I'm convinced that if every believer on the planet would approach it that way, we'd be living in a much different world. And the smart can, can get smarter and smarter and smarter. And they can write books and they can write theses and they can do all these things. But what about you and me out here trying to figure it out day by day? We just need to sit with the Lord. We need to listen to the Lord. We need to dig into His Word. We need to live our lives on a foundation of truth. We need to enter into worship by the Spirit and allow Him to teach us what He has for us. That's what Abraham is doing. It's a minute-by-minute minute thing. You know, you don't find any arguing with God. You don't find any questioning. You, you don't find wailing. and You don't find a refusal. You don't find rebellion. It's simply Abraham saying, I believe that God knows what He's doing. 
declared to be a man of great faith. The word faith and the word believe come from the exact same root word. Faith is a noun and believe is a verb. Believe is simply the action that we exercise off of our faith. And action always must be whatever God said, we do it. And that level of faith is there. You see, the whole story starts by saying that God decided to test Abraham. Test him. So I wonder how many things come along in my life that are a test. And I don't know it. But it's a test to see how much does Jeff really believe God? How much faith does he have that God really knows what he's doing? Is he willing to say yes to extreme instructions? Does he have that much faith? See, because like I said before, he he doesn't give us anything he can't trust us with. So the test will come to see where I am so that God will know, can he trust me with the next thing? And you know the story. He ties the boy up. And puts him up on the altar on top of the firewood and strikes a match. Abraham ain't playing. I mean, this is not, this is not, I just, you just don't even get a sense when you're reading the story that he's sitting there anticipating, when's God going to show up? No, no, what's in his mind is whatever God said to do, that's what I'm going to do. The results will be up to him. And if this boy burns up on this altar, then God has something else because he made a promise. He made a promise. He's going to fulfill his promise. So if this boy burns up on this altar, we're going to see what God has next. You know, if God can... Take bones spread out over a valley, pull them back together into an army? Huh? If God can take waters of a sea and push them back into giant water walls on both sides and create dry ground for a couple million people to walk across? If God can look out into darkness and chaos and say, let there be light, If God can create earth and sun and moon and flowers and trees and animals and you and me, don't you think he knows how to work out the situation when he's asked us to do something that requires extreme faith? See, he could have put the match to the wood and Isaac could have been burned to ashes And then God could have looked at the ashes and picked them up and breathed and said, life. And the boy could have risen right back up in front of him. You can't see see to, to divert, to jump off the way and to add to God's plan or implement our own plan instead of his. 
is to say, I don't believe that God has the power to do that. It's to place the limitation on God. So, he's ready to light the fire when he hears a noise and sees a ram caught in the briars. And then he knows God has provided a substitute sacrifice. But it's Abraham's faith that's the lesson. It's Abraham's willingness that's the lesson. It's Abraham's ability to push out all the thoughts and the temptations to do something different and the distractions. That's the lesson. Pivotal point right in the middle of Genesis that turns everything into a certain direction for the people of God. So, Jesus reflects on the life of Abraham. Jesus is called son of David, son of Abraham. Jesus talks about the faith of Abraham as he is presenting to his followers their opportunity to jump into the way. So it's always been a small number of people who've been willing to say, I'm going to walk in the way no matter what. I'm going to do what he says no matter what. I'm going to be a fireside disciple no matter what. And if he asks me to, to do something extreme, I'm going to say yes because I know he's God and he knows how to accomplish his plan. Whatever he's doing, I'm committed to jumping into it. So the cross, Jesus goes to the cross and he dies on the cross and he's pointing us forward. He's pointing us back to examine and look at the lives of people that God has used and spoken to throughout history. He's pointing us up because we're on our way to live in eternity with our Father. He's pointing us down because he wants us in the, in, as we live our lives and anticipate that time when we will live in eternity with our Father to understand that we have to be grounded on earth while we're here. That we have important things to do while we're here. Not to get so heavenly minded that we're no earthly good, right? Not to walk around with our head in the clouds and, and just praying, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. I personally have trouble praying that prayer because I've got too many people I know and love that if the Lord Jesus was to come right here, they wouldn't be in the number that went with him. So, yes, we anticipate it. We look forward to it. Yes, we're moving. We're walking. We're listening. We're watching. And we're on the way somewhere. But at the same time, we realize that as we go, we have stuff to do. We have missions to accomplish. We have people to reach out to. And every once in a while we look back to somebody like Abraham or David and say, what happened with them that can help me now? That sound good? Keep this image in your head as you walk it out this next week that we're reaching here and we're reaching here and we're going there and we're grounded here. And he's going to speak to us and he's going to show us. And he's going to ask us really to do some pretty extreme things along the way. And by faith, we're going to exercise our belief. We're going to say yes. 
Father, you're good. Your word is powerful. Your word is challenging. Your word is instructive. Your word is filled with truth. And every time we break it open and, and eat it, it just nourishes us and strengthens us and gives us revelation, gives us a greater understanding of who you are. And here in this room, there are people who are at all sorts of different points in life. <clears throat> there are single people, married people, younger people, older people, middle-aged people, people who have plenty of money, people who have enough, and people who don't have any at all. We're all at different spots, but, but here's what we know. Every one of us is a child, a son, or a daughter of yours. Every one of us was born with purpose. Every one of us has a mission to accomplish in this life. Every one of us is being challenged, prodded by your Holy Spirit to go somewhere and do something. And I pray that we would be aware, sensitive to it, committed to getting up every morning and paying attention to what you're saying, absorbing it, responding in obedience. It's an honor, honor to walk in the way in Jesus' name.